from my new collection of poetry called Hybrida, and this is a poem called Color. Up ahead, it's white. Snow, animal, I'm running at your back. I fail to tell you I've been hungry all this time. To tell you I've been searching for you like meat, like water. All my life, I've distanced myself as if to know you was to drown, as if to find you, I'd usher myself further from what is real. I've been adrift along the threads of time leading me out beyond an imagined frame. I've untied myself, uncuffed the arms and neck. I didn't know I was hurt like that. I didn't know there was a force pulling me downward toward bedrock, lulling me to sleep. You are the one escaping. You are the one breaking free. I understand your astonishing dash to freedom, done with the estranged wind, done with the frost and storm, orchids curling outward beyond grief. The road widens to glory. The road disappears. Once in a while, an opportunity will come your way and you have to just pinch yourself. This is one of those days. Today, I got to chat with Tina Chang, author of Hybrida, one of the most moving, challenging, and stunning books of poetry I've read. You just heard her read a piece, and spoiler alert, I asked her to read another during our interview. If you've just gotten here, welcome to PoetKind Podcast. PoetKind is dedicated to creative hospitality, to sharing what comes our way, and seeking out the voices that can move us closer together. Today is Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019, and I am your host, Susan Mulder. I don't know about you, but I find it harder and harder to listen to or watch the news. My being becomes so disturbed and unsettled, and my words become lost. Where do I focus my energies? How do I walk into the world feeling like an exposed nerve, desperate to find some way to get past that feeling, to find the rhythm of beauty and compassion, find a place to reach out to others without feeling the need to protect myself and those around me? Not easy questions. I had an opportunity to sit with the poetry of Tina Chang in Hybrida, a remarkable and eloquent volume of poetry that addresses contemporary society within the context of motherhood and what it looks like to parent children of mixed race and, more specifically, a boy. In a world where we live out the legacy of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and so many other stories that should never have to be told, Tina steps into this space and shines a light on more than just the quote-unquote facts. She deftly weaves elements of fairy tale, folklore, and allegory while never sweetening the storyline to present a powerful volume that moves and challenges the reader. She draws you in while carrying a thread of compassion throughout and never loses that strength required to convey this necessary message. For those of you who don't know, Tina Chang is the first female poet laureate of Brooklyn. She is the author of several books of poetry and editor and has been named by Brooklyn Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in Brooklyn culture. She currently teaches at Sarah Lawrence University and is part of the international faculty at City University of Hong Kong. 
She has also been the recipient of numerous awards from organizations like the New York Foundation for the Arts, the Academy of American Poets and Poets and Writers, and she also happens to be gracious, eloquent, kind, and an absolute delight to talk with. Please join me in welcoming Tina Chang to the podcast. Tina, I am so excited to have you here with me today. Uh, Your book is one of the most stunning poetry books I've read recently, and I am over the moon excited to talk with you, so thank you. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. Um, For my listeners who might not be familiar with you, would you mind spending a couple minutes telling us about yourself and then maybe talking a little bit about the evolution of this book? Okay. Well, my name is Tina Chang, and I am currently the Poet Laureate of Brooklyn. Uh, It was very interesting at the time that I received this position because it was about 10 years ago. And at the moment that I received the position, I also became pregnant with Mm. my son. So it seemed like worlds were colliding for a reason. My poetry life was very active and very busy. And at the same time, I was very actively taking care of my son and just trying to figure out all these roles that I was trying to play. Sometimes it seemed like it was very graceless. Mm. And sometimes it seemed like everything was happening for a reason. So it was during that time that I started writing this book Hybrida, which is my third book. I didn't come up with the title for a very long time. The title for the book happened much later. So as I was raising him, and I think about eight months later, I also found out that I was pregnant with a daughter. So you had your hands full. I had my hands very full. So really at the forefront of my life was motherhood. Mm. And I spent a good deal of my time taking care of them and reading to them. And I was reading them uh, everything from uh, Thomas, the Thomas Tank train stories Mm. to Elmo to Grimm's fairy tales. And I became incredibly invested in Grimm's fairy tales in particular, because Grimm's fairy tales are so incredibly grim. Yes. They are stories that really essentially, when we think of Snow White, when we think of Hansel and Gretel, um, when we think of Red Riding Hood, these are essentially stories of children who are either sent out by themselves for the first time in their lives or abandoned Mm. somehow by a guardian or parental figure and they are left alone to their own devices so fairy tales are very fascinating because most of the time they're being read it during sleep time a time that we're envisioning comfort for children trying to get them into the that that idea that they're going to go into this this realm where they're going to be safe and we cover them up with blankets. But then I found myself reading these stories that I actually found to be incredibly frightening that would instill them the opposite of the sense of safety. So I started asking myself the tougher questions like, well, number one, what do the, what does the role of these fairy tales serve? And number two, how is it speaking to my creative sensibilities? 
what am I making in response to this feeling that I have about safety? As my son in particular grew up and grew older and recognizing himself as a child of color because I am Chinese American and my, husband, uh, my husband's family is from Haiti. So part of our family is also Caribbean American. Okay. And I think that my son and also my daughter recognizing these things about themselves and also in the time that we're living in, we're living in a post Trayvon Martin, post mm -hmm. Michael Brown era in which we were coming to the full recognition in part thanks to media coverage about the lives of young boys of color. So I started to think about is my sense of safety, the natural sense of safety that a mother wants for their child, is it, is it, is it being compromised? Is it true? Am I sending them out into the world? Are they truly safe? Mm -hmm. Are they safe without me? This is every mother's hope. Right. And I always said to my son, you know, I'm really here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to teach you how to live in this world without me, which he thinks is incredibly sad. He thinks that's a sad yeah, exactly. lesson. But essentially, when we think about the roles of mothers or parents or any guardian, because not every family is a traditional family that we think of, but a guardian, we want to make sure that these children are all right when really one day we will not be here. So this is the job that we have. So then I, I first began writing this book with a sense of, oh, I'm rewriting fairy tales. I'm thinking about fairy tales. And over time, I think I became bored, honestly very bored with the concept that I was rewriting existing fairy tales. And then I started to interrogate myself even more and I thought, okay, if I am reinventing a fairy tale, what is that fairy tale? What is the modern day fairy tale? So I started to ask myself, well, who are some of the main figures in these tales? And I, I noticed that the hunter and the witch mm -hmm. were always a part of these stories as the figures that were originally placed there. It seems like they were there originally for good, you know, and they, they found like sort of a transition where the hunter sometimes is there to protect and then it winds up being the person that's actually trying to kill the children. Yeah. And then the same thing for the witch. The witch is really out on the hunt. And so I thought if I were recreating something like this, who is the modern day hunter? In the lives of brown boys and brown children in this country, I thought sometimes the people that are set out to protect them were not really the people set out to protect them if we are thinking about symbolic figures such as Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. Those figures who were there to protect them ultimately wound up, and it's controversial, the stories ultimately wound up taking their lives. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this is a controversial story that I feel that I've told across um, borders. And when I have gone to places like Asia and have retold this story, there is definitely sometimes a reaction of anger as if perhaps I don't know the whole story, or perhaps I'm taking a side, perhaps I'm not thinking about the sides of authority figures to risk their lives, to take care of communities. 
And maybe this is a very one-sided story. And I think to that, I said, yes, absolutely. It's a one-sided story. It's the story of a mother who is trying to protect her children. And I'm sure if you interviewed the mothers of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, they would say, yes, this is my story. This is my side of the story. So I think in any creative work, in any creative work, there are definitely biases and there are, there's a perspective. And I felt like my perspective was one, not only of fear, but my perspective was one that I feel of many guardians is how do we protect? How do we protect the thing and the child and the person that we love the most? And is there a true ever sense of protection if we need to let them go? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was the premise for my work, how it was going to reveal itself, I really didn't know. And I think that's why it took a full eight, eight to 10 years to write the book because as my son was growing up and as he was perceiving his surroundings and as a mother, how I was watching him, it moved, it evolved, it changed. It was affected by things like uh, media, Um, It was affected by stories and dreams and more fairy tales. And I think that instead of trying to categorize everything, like this is the type of language that I read and use for media. This is the language and kind of, and kind of English texture that I'm using when I'm reading social media. This is the kind of language I'm utilizing for poetry. I try to, in my mind, break down these barriers between these types of languages to be able to allow them to live inside one book. And that was a challenge for me because then that meant I had to find a lot of poetic forms that could allow space for that. So the whole entire thing was an experiment for me, as is, I think, parenting (laughs) or raising a child. I mean, I think it reflected that. So instead of having, you know, sort of my poetry life, my mothering life exists in these separate places, I I realized that I was allowing everything to just mesh and be messy and allow the process for a little while to be messy because that was what motherhood was and still is for me. I mean, just this morning, it was a whole big, just a a big pot of mess. I had (laughs) organized myself to be ready this morning I'd organized myself for their picture day. My alarm clock didn't wake me up and everything just seemed like it was falling to pieces. And I bring this up because it's just an example of how we build a life, how we teach our children, um, how we build something creatively. It's messy at first. And I don't think that I quite realized that until I got to this book. It was almost like a feeling of confidence that... I could allow the process to be um, unwieldy, to move in separate places, and then have the confidence that it will somehow come together. I think in my youth, I didn't allow myself that. Everything had to be strict, had to be formal, had to be neat. Um, And that's the way I sort of functioned in my life. But then motherhood taught me that everything could just open out. It could explode explosive sometimes. And then by the end, Today, everyone finds, and this is the hope, this is the hope, especially with the thinking about the book, hopefully everyone's alive, everyone's well, and I think in that, you know, there are those successes of the day, like everyone's here, we're all intact, we made it through the day, 
And I think that thinking, feeling and thinking this fragility of life, you know, that's all we really, really hope for. They're alive, they're well, you know, and I think that's what made writing the book so also an emotional task for me too. Yeah, it was um, a a very emotional experience to read the book. There is a lot of power and energy. And then that, that, um, the tender violence of being a mother, because you want to protect your children, but yet that, that overwhelming sense of um, wanting to either control or keep away those fairy tales that we grew up with mm-hmm. that infuse everything we did for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think how you pulled this together, you know, th- this wasn't, this isn't a, a book, for, if for folks who haven't read it, this isn't a book just to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to read a book of poetry. Mm-hmm. This is an intense soul um, exploration and the power of motherhood and the power of um, how we live in our contemporary culture as individuals as well. So, yeah, it took a, it definitely took a lot of soul searching. And I oftentimes say that when I wrote this book, I was crying a lot. <laughs> and I think that I sometimes you could really tell when, uh, and I, you know, when I, when I have been talking to poets on the road, they say the same thing. I mean, once I'm able to say that, they say the same thing. I cried over the writing my book too. And it was a lot of, because it was a lot of processing of this information of stories that are told of stories that I feel so deeply for my connection to other mothers. It's almost like when they're losing their son, I, even if I don't know them, I could, I imagine myself sitting with them. Mm. So the stories that I tell in this collection, the story of Libby Kletsky, when he wanted to walk home for the first time by himself and just the gesture, just the gesture, you hope you're making, you're not making a mistake when you tell your son, because one day as a parent, we have to let go. Exactly. Okay, well, you want to walk home by yourself and that's exactly what I'm dealing with right now. You want to walk home by yourself. Okay, today's the day. You get to walk home by yourself because I'm so confident in you that you can do this and it's not the confidence in them it's never the confidence in them it's sort of Mm -hmm. what world is waiting for them and in most cases in most cases 99 percent of the time you know they make it home and they're great and you're proud of them and then they can tackle the next thing that that helps them to be independent but in those very rare cases they don't make it home and in this case of Libby Kletsky, he was eight years old and his parents really wanted to give him the task of being able to do this because he asked for it. He said, I yes. want to do this. And then for him to not make it home and to not make it home alive. I mean, when I'm reading stories to my children at night, I just found myself holding them so close thinking, can I ever do this? Can I ever really let you go? And I think that's the place where I'm right now. There are so many debates at home. Do we let them walk around the neighborhood by themselves? Do we, do we do that? Do we not? Because one day we're going to have to, what age is that? So I think they're just at the age right now where all the parents are talking about it. How much independence do we give to them? We don't want to be helicopter parents. We don't want to hold too close to the point that, they're not finding a sense of themselves 
um, without us. So I think for me, the book was an exploration of that. Like when we let go, what happens? Yeah. You know, and, and, um, the stories aren't always, the stories don't always turn out the way that we hope to. But then, you know, by the end of the book, the, the mother and the son and the daughter, they're all still, they're all still very much together. So I think as much as I was writing through sort of the sadness and the sorrow of some of the stories I was pondering when I was reading it, I think I was also contemplating just how fierce mm-hmm. this type of love is. There is really nothing like mother love or guardian love you know this kind of feeling that you have that you will do anything and place yourself in harm's way to protect yes and you that is just um that comes across so clearly and the fact that you wrote this over a period of many years Mm -hmm. you kind of see that evolution begin to grow Mm -hmm. and um and that sense that like you just articulated, you want to protect them, but you also, you're preparing yourself to be ready to let them out into the world. But what that means and how do you raise empowered children to not live in a sense of fear mm-hmm. and still maintain their, you want to protect their innocence in some ways, mm-hmm. but yeah. also um, imbue them with the ability to cope with the ugliness that exists out there the um the truth behind the fairy tales yeah i mean i think that's what we're coping with right now because my son just happened to be from a very young age from the time he was a baby and at the point that he was able to sort of voice himself he was a very anxious person Mm -hmm. and i think that we're really at the point where um we are asking ourselves how much do we how much do we tell him about yeah. the world we can't that's the thing too we can't keep out the world <laughs> we can't hide them from the world that's right. not helping them to grow up but and so it's this it's this very delicate balance of what do we share what do we expose um and then what do we shut out for just and you can only do that for so long you know once they enter into their teen years and and we're dealing with that right now is that my son is going into middle school. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> exactly. Happens, it's like the whole, just the whole, just hormones, um, so, social hierarchy, um, studies become more difficult. How do we teach them then to um, move forward? And it's n- none of it is graceful. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I'm sort of preparing myself for. If it doesn't feel graceful, you're in the right place. Don't worry about that part because no matter what it seems like on the outside, no one has it together. I could say that for adulthood too, you know, (laughs) yeah, so true. whatever it seems, however wonderful somebody's life looks like, and I'm not denying that there's lovely aspects of everybody's lives, it still feels difficult inwardly. And I think like thinking about that inward process of what it is like um, to be a parent was um, was paramount to me because I thought like how do I write a book that reflects that feeling you know everything the whole big swampiness of it my love my fear um, 
my admiration for this person who is so different from me, who's mm-hmm. been placed out there, who is a part and not a part of me. And the, the not a part is just the hardest aspect of it to, 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 to admit to. Um, my friend recently posted on her, on her social media, she was talking about her son and she said, you know, this person is my heart, like mm-hmm. living outside of my body. I'm like, oh, yes, that's such a beautiful, just a beautiful way of thinking about it. It's my heart living outside of my body. And how do you, how do you let that go? Right. <laughs> how do you come to terms with that? You do. And the thing is, as a parent, you do. Yes, you do. eventually. But it changes. Yeah. <laughs> as, they get old, as they get older. Remarkably, they are still so much a part of who you are yes. when they re- enter that adulthood and then have children yes. of their own. Yes. It's, a whole, it's a whole new facet. And I'm, I'm really aging myself, so now you have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> I know because I'm a daughter. I don't think my mother says you never stop worrying about your children. And she still worries about me in the same ways that she worried about me when I was 10, when I was 16, when I was in my 20s. Yes. I don't think she worries any less. Nope, any it less. doesn't no change. Matter, no matter how much I assure her, I'm fine. I'm really fine. She doesn't yeah. believe me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think as, as, as mothers, as we age, we have less control, mm-hmm. but also a greater awareness of the larger dangers that exist too. So it, it changes and um, it morphs as you get as you grow as a mother. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, one of the things, and this is maybe changing courses just a little bit. Um, I, I was originally given a digital copy of the book okay. and I'm a very tactile person. And it's like, no, this isn't going to work. I need the book. I need to be able to write on the pages and I need to be able to um, feel it. And as I was thumbing through when my copy came, I noticed the visual element you have some ekphrasis poetry in there mm-hmm. and um, you reference uh, Kehinde Wiley. I adore his work and also Kara Walker's work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her work as well. Um, it was kind of a, a shift in the book, but it all worked very well together. And I thought it was interesting then as you close out the book, you use an illustration from your son, mm-hmm. which the illustration made me cry Aww. because it's so deep for someone so young mm-hmm. and such a self-awareness of, of him in his world. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought that was an interesting, you know, did you plan that or did it just happen organically or? I think that my son knew that I had utilized images in the, in the book because as I was choosing them, I was just talking to him about I mean, we talk about artists all the time in our home. It's, a, it's an artistic home. We just talk about everything. And so I brought to him the work of Kehinde Wiley. He's particularly excited that Kehinde Wiley made the portrait for Obama. And he's yeah. very, very aware of that. That's, you know, even Obama's presence, which I'll talk about later, is, is a huge, huge aspect of his life. Because mm-hmm. when Obama became president, was sworn in, I was pregnant with my son. So at that point from age, uh, you know, from the time he was born until age eight, he only knew a mixed race black president. Mm. And so um, for him, that's what he thought life was. And so at age eight, there was a tremendous shift in personhood and mentality and approach. 
And that has really, you know, really devastated him. I think the, the day that he found out about the results of the last election, he was running down the stairs and, I, and he asked me what had happened. And I told him um, who had won and he just started, he sat on the stairs and started to cry. Yeah. I think a lot of us had that same reaction. I mean, the saddest thing is that I could not stay with him because I had to go immediately to work where I was riding the train to go see my college students. Mm. I think it was my, it was my graduate students. And uh, I was trying to plan out what I was going to say. And this is a different kind of guardianship that I take very seriously that I, I, I try to think of all these smart things to say say or comforting things to say on the way to school after having just left my son in tears mm. could not stay with him I told him I promised him I would be back later and we would talk about it but I did leave him crying <laughs> and then uh, when I left I was crying because I was so sad about the results for our country and then and then I had to sort of clean myself up to be able to walk into the classroom and talk to my students who were all crying <laughs> oh. Every single one of my students was, oh, they were sitting in a circle and they're in the, around the table and they're crying and I, I didn't have anything to say. And I, I started talking and then I walked out of the room as well. And I started yeah. crying and then I came back in and I tried to figure out ways that we, at least we could support each other. So that's to say that the, having Obama as his president, having Kehinde Wiley as another black man, painting his portrait all of this for a young boy these these are these are the, their role models this is mm -hmm. these are people that they look up to so he was he loved the fact that i included images in my book so we talked about why i was including the images in the book um what ekphrastic poetry is um what does it mean and he's like well mom if you're talking about images and poetry i mean i kind of do that all the time kids do that all the time i said you're absolutely right. They do. He's an insightful young man. It's insight. It's insightful because I think as we grow older, the, the, there's a kind of like more of a separation of arts, and I think that we're in a very, very exciting time right now. Where I think that those walls are without a doubt breaking down. Where mm -hmm. um, poets who are writing are are thinking about how all of these elements are, are coming together, and um, just like everything that is fluid, that is moving from one space to another, that doesn't need to have, have boundaries. I think the arts are doing the same thing. So I think. It's just an incredibly thrilling time to see what people are making in terms of these different art forms speaking to one another. So in answer to your question, when I had finished the book, he said, well, you know, I said I finished Rome and I think I finished it and I had my work and I had my manuscript in a stack and he said, well, I, said, I feel like it's sort of missing something. He said, well, I kind of feel like if the book is speaking about some of my experiences he said don't you um don't you want the book to end with something i made i said um he goes can i can i put something in that book and i think he had actually at that point he had picked up a book by um kevin young called brown he said wait a minute he goes he let his son do some illustrations he said i really i would really really love to just finish this book with something that i'm creating i said i see no reason why so i asked my editor i said if i end this 
book with something that my son created? Is this going to be a problem? And she said, absolutely not. I mean, I just had the best editor, Jill Bialowski at, at Norton, who was just so open the entire time. And, and so much of our exchange was also about her being a mother. So I think having a mother who was an editor who understood the kind of book that I wanted to create meant everything to me. So he started creating something. I saw actually a piece of writing that he created for a class. And I said, I love this fragment of what you wrote. I said, can I include that? I love it. And he said, yeah. He said, but you have to let me draw something for it, mom, because he's like, everything is like graphic novels and I can, I can make something for that. And I said, okay. So then he created the panels um, that you see in the back mm -hmm. of the book. And he is very interested in science fiction. A lot of boys who are eight to 12 or beyond are right. very interested in um, science fiction, sort of apocalyptic versions of the future. And the darker the future, the better. And I suppose in many ways, we're sort of there. Yeah. So I just thought that the way that the book ended with a reflection on a boy who enters into a room who peels off his skin mm -hmm. and who comes out and asks, who am I? It was for him like sort of a futuristic look at the world of people being able to morph and transform. And then everybody has to guess who they are. I felt like, wow, that's saying so much about what he truly thinks. Yeah. You know, does he think that it's all like identity, perception of identity, others' perception of your identity, has everything to do with peeling off your skin. I just thought like, and, and I don't think that he quite realizes like how advanced that thought is yes. and how he's processing everything. He will a long time from now, but right now he sees it as a future story. He's like, guess who I am, mom? Guess he actually had me sitting there. He said of all the figures in this question mark or outside of this question mark, because it's a question mark that's mm -hmm. surrounding and bordering the figures. He says, who am I? Who do you think I am? I, I guess and I guess. He said, nope, you guessed all wrong. I'm this figure. I'm this, I'm this figure in the corner where no one notices that figure. That's me. So mm -hmm. it, just, it just was so, everything he says is so emotional because we're coming at it through the lens of motherhood. Yes. Coming at it through the lens of, oh, I'm your peer. I'm your friend. I'm the same age. We're coming at it with all of our life experience of everything that we know, of all the hurt we've experienced, of all the things that we understand about our history, all the shame that we have about our history mm. in terms of slavery and genocide and all the harm that we've done. We see that child's processing of everything through that lens, yes. whereas that child was so innocent. And they're like, well, this is kind of the way I'm seeing the world in there. They're just starting that process yeah. of seeing self, seeing, yeah. like seeing self in a community. Yes. And but so he recognizes that, that, um, that dichotomy of, of personal identity, but also how we attempt to transform ourselves within the community to make ourselves fit or less noticeable or whatever it is and or invisible you know invisible. like a person came out and there's a kind of invisibility with having peeled off their skin he yeah. you know he's futuristic right mom i'm like not futuristic uh, yeah. you know if we could all peel off our skin does that mean like all of our problems are solved and not at all 
you know, because really it's not, it, it is the skin. I do see color. Everyone sees color, mm -hmm. but it's sort of what has inspired each and every human being to recognize color as something that is connected to violence mm -hmm. or something that is connected to hierarchy or something that's connected to commodity of bodies. Like all of this is so important and in the subtle ways in which or maybe not so subtle ways in which I'm talking about motherhood, I'm absorbing and um, trying to analyze and understand all of these things. Like seeing someone grow up from a place where I see he and his friends as babies, you know, touching each other in wonder and yeah. excitement and love and beauty. And then seeing them in second, third, fourth grade, fifth grade, starting to see differences of how people are self-segregating, segregating themselves, why, you know, all of these questions come into play. Why must we do this? We don't begin that way as humans. Mm. We only see eyes, nose. This is how we name ourselves, right? Your eyes, your nose, your mouth, you know, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Yes. What everybody is head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Like how does it move on to this other place? How do we learn that segregation, you know, and all the impact of that? So seeing and feeling that as a mother, of course, is so hurtful, you know, trying mm -hmm. to answer the questions for a young person. Why is it like this? Why are we different? Why does this president seem to hate us? Why does this president seem to hate brown people? Why does this president want to keep what it seems to be brown people on the other side of the wall? Why do we mm -hmm. have these are all questions I can't answer. <laughs> you know, as, as a parent, you want to have all the answers. You want to have all the answers at the ready to make them feel safe and protected. And when you're just kind of puttering about, I don't have the answer, it yeah. seems like for a minute a failure. Mm. But is it the failure of the person that can't answer? Or is it the failure of a society who can't seem to get it together <laughs> to yes. be able to present an environment that is safe and equal for all. Of course, we want yeah. this. We all want this, especially Absolutely. now. We want this. But I almost feel like, and we talk about this a lot in my household, because um, we have talks all the time about race, about how we see um, things functioning right now. We think we, we talk about the debates. And, you know, my husband, in many ways, sees this almost this, this time in our history as a positive thing. He's like, it's bringing to the forefront so many things that are hidden. And it's prompting us and it's pushing us to, to really realize that we must all be vocal um, and that we must all vote. We must all be out there to be able to choose a leader who truly represents all people. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a sad time. And I, and I think that my family, my children realize it as a very sad time. You know, I think that they feel both sadness and anger. It's kind of like the first time I've seen anger coming and it's hard to see anger coming from children in regard to that but i also think that it makes them more fully realize little human beings you know they're learning yes. they're learning that the good guy isn't always the leader you bring up a good point is how do you how do you as a as a parent guardian um mother raise up um intelligent thoughtful, tender humans 
and deal with these contemporary issues without anger seeping in. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a difficult. Um, I think that's a hard thing to walk because yeah. you pointing there, out. I mean, there are arguments too that anger is very useful. You know, you speak to a lot of communities, and they're like, you know, anger is a anger is a very true feeling. Anger is a rightful feeling. How mm-hmm. can we even begin to talk about our history of slavery? without anger exactly i think i think as as long as we acknowledge the anger we acknowledge that the anger is there and we talk about it allow it to enter into the space without feeling that it's a negative thing Mm -hmm. that it actually can cause for movement it can cause it causes for a revolution you know my husband is very proud of the haitian revolution where that had to have started from a place of well, I'm angry that I'm in shackles. I am angry. Yes. I am I am being imprisoned against my will. I'm angry that my body is being used to serve others. So it starts then, of course, from a place of anger and then it moves to a place of revolution. Yes. You know, we need to have, in, in, in the Haitian Revolution, we need to have a revolution so that we can free ourselves from bondage. Yes, so in that use way, the anger you know, well. Yeah, you use the anger well. Like, how are you? Like, I think if anger is to stay stagnant and not move anywhere, you know, then I think it becomes something that maybe even be filled with self harm if it doesn't move to another space. But I think allowing anger to evolve into action, allowing anger to evolve into um, a place where we're, we're seeking maybe another platform to express this view, allowing it into a move to a space of reform. How do we do that? And I think that that's sort of a very useful conversation to have with a child. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you utilize the feelings that you have right now to work against what you see is not working? You know, there are plenty of things that are not working. You know, we could say, okay, well, you know, we went to the climate march together. We could say, okay, we march, we hope we're heard. And then what can we do? What are the steps beyond that, that can create a kind of change, create a kind of world that we are envisioning and maybe even knowing that even though we're making those steps, it still might not create the exact world that we envision once we leave it, but it still shouldn't stop us from making those steps. Yes. And be- and, and, and creating voice for ourselves being heard. I think that for a long time, I didn't give the arts and I didn't give poetry, especially the kind of credence and the kind of honor it deserves. I mean, I always personally honored poetry because I studied poetry for most of my life. I had the greatest professors, but then when I headed out into the world beyond poetry, there was kind of like a rude awakening, like poetry, I'm not even reading poetry, like who reads poetry? Yeah. So I felt like I was fighting against, but now, you know, in the past two to three years with all of this debate, with the fake news, with this language that, harms and hurts and divides i'm thinking there is actually no greater way to live a life than to try to realize a kind of truth in language Mm. because language is really at the forefront and then we sort of get to the place like well what is the truth 
and my truth is, and what we see now, like one person's truth, sense of truth, right, is really different from another's. And we could even see that we're on the same side, right? We could even say, well, you know, we're all progressive, we're all artists, we all think the world should be equal. I don't see color. I'm like, well, I do see color. I actually see the color because it's right in front of me. And then we can, but how do we get within that space where we're all able to be flexible and talk and speak and not cut each other off and Mm. not feel that we need to be in this war of language to win? I don't want to win anymore. I don't want to win. I I actually think that one of the greatest things to do is to listen, to listen and to not feel like we need to say anything at all and to really create that space where we're listening to the language of someone else. And I don't think any other art form has taught me how to listen than poetry. You have to listen with poetry. You'd get nothing unless you had a tremendous amount of quiet space to take it in because that's what the art form really demands yes you know it demands it you know you can't read poetry on the go it's like what you're saying about this collection you know hybrida it can't be the type of book where you say well i'm just going to hang out here for a few minutes i have two minutes that i can scroll through i could just you know look at it right and it's not i think in general um any poems that we love we adore any books we adore it takes a tremendous amount of concentration and time and sadly, I think technology, and when it's not used well, is like takes that particular kind of intensity of absorption, you know, to be able to totally, completely give ourselves over mm-hmm. to that space of silence, um, time. Yes. You know, I think that we're convinced we don't have the silence and the time, but if we shut off and shut down in a lot of areas, we realize we actually do gain a lot of hours back for ourselves if we so choose, you know, choose. Yes. Yeah. We have to choose because then I think that when we shut down and shut off for a little bit, what we're really confronting is the greater silence and the greater silence might mean that we're confronting our own loneliness and isolation. And that's very scary for a lot of people, for a lot of artists I know, for my, I can only really speak for myself. I've confronted that in my life, you know, stayed for long periods of time by myself with uh, no technology at all, just me, myself, books, a pen, and a piece of paper. It was wonderful. It was so, so good. And I think that if we could all do that a bit more often we can all get used to this sense of listening to others and having that feeling of like listening to others being really fruitful and really beautiful and very educational even even the views of those who I don't understand sometimes I think that's what it's taught me let me listen to those who I don't agree with yeah I don't understand can that too teach me about something about myself can it teach oh, absolutely. me reactions to things? Can it teach me about my approach? Can it teach me then about my own aesthetics and my own views and perspectives? Or does it even have to do that? Can't, can't, how do we live together where all of those ideas can coexist? I think it's been an era of um, a, a huge amount of intolerance. 
mm. you know, even in, even in the media, even in, 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 in newspapers that I respect greatly, it's been, it's been sad for me to feel intolerance on that yeah. part, on the part of, of, of periodicals and journals and, and newspapers I respect so much. Yeah. And I think well, and this becomes a collective voice yeah. and people think that they have their own opinions, mm -hmm. but all they're doing is regurgitating what they've taken in over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then without that silence, they can't find what it is they really believe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a time of, of great reflection. I think, I do think that a lot of people who are speaking up have really reflected on these things for a long time. But I think that because there is the kind of language that's being pushed forth that feels so urgent via, you know, social media and especially Twitter, where everything feels so immediate, if someone says mm. something, respond right away. I think admittedly, that's why I'm not on Twitter, which means that I uh, you know, I, I respect those who are on it, but I, I for, for myself personally, I don't feel like <laughs> maybe I'm slow, but I feel like my no. reaction or my reactions are not very quick. It moves against the tide of what I learned as a poet to take things very slowly. And it's okay to do that, to take yeah. things slowly. I mean, I live in a very fast moving city you know, New York City, everything is fast. Every, when I'm in, on the street, I move fast. I move away fast. I can react quickly. I pull my children aside really quickly if someone's about to crash into them. I'm like, pull them out of the street if I see them walking against right. the light. Everything is so fast that I think that for each per person, their spirit and their soul is really calling out for something, one thing in their life that is slow, slowing yeah. it down. And for me, that has always really been this art form of poetry that I love so much. I needed it. You know, my spirit really needed it and still does. And I'm, I'm waiting for moments to return back to it very fully of, of really writing again for my next project. Um, but this, this hybrid was really a slow project, you know, really, really slow, meaning I would write one poem, like there was one poem called Zuhitsu, Zuhitsu, mm -hmm. and Zuhitsu is a is an ancient uh, Japanese female poetic form derived from the Pillow Book, and the Pillow Book. The idea of the Pillow Book is the is the Japanese courtesans would sleep with a book under their pillow, and when they woke up, they would take the book from underneath their pillow and write in it, write mm -hmm. whatever dreams or ideas or whatever they had on their mind that was fresh because when we, when we wake up in the morning, we're in an in-between state. We're in between what we deem to be reality and dream. So they would write. And I love, and so it became a form of, I guess, a form of stream of consciousness. So I loved this idea that everything can just be thrown in there and, 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 and be able to converse with each other. So I wrote this poem called Hybrida Azuhitsu because I thought there has to be a space for the language of media and journalism and dream and journaling. And I wanted lists, I wanted everything to be able to exist together in this experience of watching my son growing up and then also experiencing in my imagination over and over all of these young boys of color dying at the hands of authorities. They coexisted in the imagination of the mother yeah. and 
about the Zuhitsu was the only place that I could put all that. So for example, something like that was slow going. I mean, that sure. poem was a very long poem. You know, I think it took me, I don't know, three or four years to write, maybe longer, because every time I thought I was finished with it, I wasn't finished with it. It changed, yeah. It, cha it changed. As he changed, it changed. As, as the stories that I was hearing and experiencing with other mothers changed, the poem changed. Yeah. And I think this is a question that a lot of poets have when they're creating their books is, as I'm changing and my work is changing, how do I come to terms with a book? How do I finish a book if I'm just changing? Right. And, you know, they always say, you know, every great work, eventually it must be, you must walk away. You must abandon it. There has to be a point where you feel like there is a cutoff point. So I think even now, I think I, I feel this sense, like a phantom book, you know, I'm always mm. writing poems for hybrid. I'm still writing things in my mind for it. And it's hard for me to let go of it, but I know that I completed the book and anything else that I write might be for something else. It might be for yeah. collaboration or a different project or for a children's book or something else. I needed to, to fold something up. And that was also, I think, a great way for my son to end the book because it's mm. almost him telling me, okay, mom, <laughs> it's, <done. laughs> it's time. It's time. It's time. I'm going to put a little stamp on it with my, you know, my name and, um, and, and the images and, and, and the writing and then, okay, we're yeah. done with it. it could, and it's, it could just be a phase. We're done with this phase. Now on to a different phase. What comes next? Comes next. Exactly. Well, I'm wondering if you would take a few minutes and share a piece from Hybrida. Okay. And um, let the listener experience what it is we've been talking about. Okay, sure. Uh, this is called uh, Fury. My son rubs his skin and names it brown, his expression gleeful as I wipe a damp cloth over his face this morning. Last night, there were reports that panthers were charging through the streets. I watch from my seat in front of the television, a safe vista. I see the savannah. Sometimes though, my son wakes to a kind of nightmare. He envisions words on the wall and cannot shake them. He tries to scratch them away or runs out of the room, but the words follow him. None of it makes any sense, but it's the ghost of his fear that I fear. What is a safe distance from the thoughts that pursue us? And what if the threat persists despite our howling? Buildings collapse. A woman falls down the stairs and lands on her back with only one eye open, half awake to her living damage. I think my son senses what's happening on the street, his heart fiercely tethered to mine. I know the world will find him and tell him the history of his skin. Harm will come searching for him and pour into him its scorching mercury, its nails, its bitter breath against his boyhood skin, still smelling of milk and wonder. Somewhere, the panthers are running, starting fires fueled by a distinct hunger. Somewhere, there's a larger fire, a pyre stoked by the fury of all that we've come to understand, all that we could have done, but did not. Its flames lick the underside of the earth. It propagates, needing only a frenzy of air to fan it to inferno. I'll call that the forest. The deep woods are ahead, 
and if the panthers could just reach it. If I told you that all of this happens at night, you wouldn't believe me. If I told you all of this happens in the future, always the future, you would continue following the scent you could only describe as smoke. I'll call that justice. But aren't we talking about mercy and its dark twin? Isn't that what's pummeling history on the side as I write this? Isn't it the thorn and the taser? Isn't it the chokehold and the gold arm of vengeance? I say it from my mouth. And when it spills forth, it lands on the ground in a pool of light reflecting back at me the one true blasphemy, love and 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 love is crowding the street and needs only air and it lives over there in the distance burning. I have to say you picked one of my favorites. Thank you. Um, it, it was such um, a vast poem in such a dense amount of, um, not, I don't want to say words, but everything is in there. Mm -hmm. And then love at the end, you know, I, the equation of love and blasphemy, mm -hmm. but it sounds like love is the victor, even though all this else is happening. Mm -hmm. I love that piece. Thank you for sharing that one. Yeah. I mean, I think that's all that can happen really, because I really, in some ways I wrote that poem very quickly and in other ways I wrote it slowly. So I, I, this all happened after the Michael Brown and Eric Garner verdicts and they mm -hmm. came one after the other very quickly. So I was just trying to cope with um, the verdict for one and then the other one came in and I was filled with so much anger and we were talking mm -hmm. about anger before. And I had such a hard time knowing what to do with that anger. And almost always during the writing of this book, the feelings that I had, my first impulse was write about it, don't write about it, write about it. Right. <laughs> so I was fighting myself a lot because I felt sometimes it wasn't my right to even reflect upon somebody else's story. Mm. So I would think a lot about Trayvon Martin's mom I would think a lot about Michael Brown's mom and I would think about just what are they doing today and how are they coping? How, how does one deal with the loss of a child? So I would wind up thinking about them, I mean, for days and days, but after these two particular verdicts, I was just so upset and so angry and I just wrote down at the top of the page, fury, <laughs> almost mm. kind of holes in the page. I was so upset. And then I just started writing the poem. And as much as I wanted to stay in a place of anger, the poem wouldn't let me. And it just wound up just the love, all the loves, and there's more loves than probably I read. I don't want to tire any of the <laughs> listeners out. Is that there was like love going on forever because that's just really what I felt. I just felt like I can't stay angry. I want yeah. to stay angry. And I can't stay angry because all I feel is love. You know, I feel love even though I didn't know those boys, I felt love, you know, I felt love for 
their mothers. I felt yes. love for them from afar, you know, just wanting to reach out to them. Felt love for my son and my daughter, who I'm trying so hard to protect. And, and, and I felt like that's the place that the poem wanted to land as much as I was fighting it. Yeah. Just where it wanted to be. And I guess I ended with the word burning because that was a combination of love and fury for me. You know, yeah. and how it felt for how it felt for me. It just felt yeah. like a burning sensation that I was feeling. It's just like love. And yeah. Really and a deep way. compassion. And I it seems to be a thread. It doesn't seem to be, it is a thread that follows through mm-hmm. in the writing because there is anger, there is frustration, there is um all these emotions, mm-hmm. but at the bottom of it it's all tied together with maintaining a sense of humanity, of compassion and love. So Mm -hmm. just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I I think with that, we're going to start to draw to a close. And I hate to, because I feel like I could just sit here and have coffee and tea with you all morning. You have so much wisdom and so much, um, so many beautiful words to share, but I want to encourage my listeners if you do not have it, please go out and get Hybrida. It will, it will become one of those books that sits with you for a very, very long time. Thank you. You mentioned that you might be working on a new project. Is that underway or is that still in, in the thought uh, season? Well, you know, a, a lot of what happens after a book is that there's to- touring for the book. So mm. in really... Um, the mode of, of traveling and touring and giving talks about the reading uh, about the book um, hybrid right now. Um, and then come January, I actually have a writing residency. Oh, exciting. I haven't announced yet, but it is a, a I'll be an inaugural fellow for a, a writing center. So I'm, I'm very excited about that come January and I will um, I have lots and lots of ideas because I'm always thinking and jotting down ideas of what I'd like to do, but a lot of it has to do with young people's literature. Mm. And I think it's, as I was writing this, I thought, you know, why am I not writing sort of young people's literature? Why am I not speaking to some of the, uh, the audience that I'm really reflecting upon and thinking about? So it naturally led to sort of this next phase that I'm invested in. So I've been taking notes the entire time that I've been on my travels and I look forward to January when I could really sit down and give my whole self over to writing this again, writing again. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to that next installment and and what you have to offer. Thank you. I look forward to it too. Now you mentioned you're not on, you're not on Twitter. Um, I'm on, I'm yeah, I'm on Facebook. Okay. And I'm, I love Instagram so much. So I want, I love the, I love the freedom and the joy of Instagram and the fact that it's image based. And I yes. think it feels so much less embedded in argument and more embedded in what we're, we're, we're relaying via an image, which I, I, is so fun for me. So I'm on, I'm on Instagram at Tia Chang underscore poet. I'm on Facebook. And I also have a, a website, www.tinachang.com. 
www.ellenbarnes.com where everyone can find information about my book. Yeah, um, and I'll encourage them to go follow you so that they can see your, your wonderful posts. Oh, thank you so much. Tina, this has been just a highlight. Thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. Um, I, I can't endorse your book anymore. It is just so wonderful. And um, I look forward to all your future successes. Thank you. Thanks for everything. Just a reminder, follow Tina on Instagram at Tina Chang underscore poet and look her up on Facebook. You can also visit her website at tinachang.com and search for her work online. I also encourage you to pick up a copy of Hybrida at your favorite book retailer. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me here on PoetKind. I know there are so many things that call for your time, and if you've spent a few moments here, thank you. PoetKind exists because of the support you listeners have shown through encouragement, reviews, and I can't stress enough how important those are to us, and the formation of relationships that has developed through the podcast. We are grateful to be here, and even more so for each one of you. I firmly believe that we are stronger together, that it's okay to compare notes, but not okay to compare ourselves. Let's work together to create a space of welcome, of grace, and of support for the creative endeavors that have the capacity to make this world a better place. We say it in our name, but let's write kind, paint kind, create kind, poet kind, but above all, be kind. Until next time, thanks again and enjoy the rest of this day.